Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode features directors Anthony and Joe Russo discussing the latest installment in the Marvel franchise, Avengers Endgame. The film takes place directly after the events of the previous film, Avengers Infinity War, and follows the superhero team and their allies as they assemble one final time to undo Thanos' destruction and restore their devastated universe. In addition to Avengers Endgame and Avengers Infinity War, The Russo Brothers' directorial credits include the feature films Captain America The Winter Soldier, Captain America Civil War, You, Me, and Dupree, Welcome to Collinwood, and Pieces, the movies for television The Council of Dads and Courtroom K, the pilot for the series Lucky, and the pilots and episodes of the series Community and Arrested Development. Following a recent screening of the film at the Harmony Gold Theater in Los Angeles, the Russo brothers spoke with director Todd Holland about filming Avengers Endgame. During their conversation, they discussed their love of subverting genre, the crucial task of balancing tone, and the unique opportunities for emotional payoff created by the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Please note that this is a spoiler-filled discussion. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Sitting through that on a Sunday, on a very nice Sunday. Uh, I was telling the guys just how moving and amazing it was just backstage just now. And it, I just say, what I, the one thing that struck me in the 22 movies in 11 years of this segment of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is how you brought the world into inclusion in the superhero world. You've been a part of that whole thing. It's just, it's, you had a scene in, was it Infinity War? Where the women, yeah, the, where the women fight, uh, they protect, you know, and then you mm-hmm. escalated this in this movie. Right. Yep. I think it's just amazing how you marvel as a company and you guys as directors have managed to keep pace with, with the world. Absolutely. I think the thing we're most proud of with Marvel moving forward is how inclusive it is. And there's a lot of stuff that we know about that's coming that, you know, that um, hasn't been announced yet. That's going to be, I think, very, very, very exciting for people all over the world. These are global stories and everyone has the right to see themselves represented on screen. And I also think, you know, right from the get go, like from our first Marvel movie with uh, Winter Soldier, you know, traveling the world with that film and especially seeing how that movie plays to audiences in developing countries, you realize you know, the world is bigger than the United States and Europe, and there are a lot of places in the world where there are things that we all take for granted that are the, the furthest thing from a given. So there are, there are ideas, ideas in these movies that are critically, critically important, not to just the audiences here, but audiences the world over that mean that means something to them, and uh, that it's a great reminder when you're when you're telling a story that is global, and just inspiring people to see themselves on screen as superheroes and uh, and dream. Um, if you don't know, jo- Anthony and Joe 
come from a very diverse background. There's a great interview in DGA um, quarterly uh, this this cycle. It's the current issue, so pick it up or look at it in your magazine bin at home if you have it. But it, you know, they started independent film, moved into television. We were together in television for a decade, and then transitioned into into the into the Marvel universe and back into film. And what I said to them: twenty two movies in 11 years, you finally have a full season. Um, which is awesome. Which, by the way, that was the first time that observation had been made, which is perfect. Yeah. I said, you know, so it's great. They have been around the world doing press, and no one's ever noticed that. But it, it's, it, to me, I really want to I was so, I'm so impressed with all of four of your films in the balance of intimacy and spectacle. And I always feel the television director in you, in you guys, hanging on to the characters so intimately and tracking the personal. Because in television, whenever feature directors come into my office and they pitch stuff, I always go, they always pitch story. And I go, no, no, no. TV is character, 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 character. And, you know, I feel like you've managed to do that and bring in the massive stories, but you've kept the characters so vivid and protected and so fulfilling. Well, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a great point. I mean, look, look at, at the end of the day, this is a very specific genre. And while Joe and I, a lot of our approach to these films and to, to our filmmaking in general has been to be subversive and to, to find ways to uh, sort of re-examine genre and undermine genre, um, at the end of the day, these are genre films. So you know there's going to be a fight. You know the movie's going to climax in a battle. You know what I mean? So you, you know these things going into the film. It's a, it's a genre film. Uh, but what you don't know is what you're talking about, which is the nonces of character that we're going to play with along the way and explore along the way. That's, that's where the movie becomes fresh and unpredictable. And that's, that's, of course, where we, that's what we lean on in terms of what we can bring to the table directorially. And yeah, movies of this scale, I think, are best serviced and balanced. I think the um, one thing that I don't think we talk about enough as directors, all of us, is that the uh, to help each other out is the I, I think the key ingredient to uh, success as a director is tone, and I think you know if you want to get great performances, you can go study with uh, an acting coach and learn how to talk to actors and their language. If you want to learn structure, you can read any number of uh, screenplay books. Tone is not something that you can learn or be taught. It's something that you have to gain through execution. And, uh, and I think ultimately what we're talking about is tonal balance, right? We're trying to balance these things tonally because your mind will only receive so much spectacle. 30 seconds of spectacle that is not either moving a character forward or moving the story forward, your brain shuts off. It can't handle like just, you know, a juxtaposition of inconsequential images for beyond more than 30 seconds. So for us, it is the, the thing that we care about and why we get out of bed every day to make these movies is the tone and figuring out with each one of them how do you thread the needle of tone in a way that, that balances the movie correctly? Well, there's two aspects to tone in this in this case, which is one is the intimacy and the relationship of character, and the other one is comedy. And the humor you bring into situation, it's constant. So I, I found it's interesting, I watched all your movies again with my, my our nine-year-old son hanging, hanging over my shoulder, but it's interesting, I felt like, you know, um, uh, Civil War is, I mean, you, in all your movies, including this one, you constantly break the action down into these sequence of two-hander scenes. You figure out who to put together. It's two or three, but it's always these two and two and three, and then sometimes four for a while. But it, you really, I, I thought Infinity War was more of a group movie, just looking at it, you know, quickly. I thought, but 
all of them, you managed to find the intimacy by working to define the relationships in a series of two-handers where we get to experience the peop these characters we love with fresh insight. Is that something you do in script? You break it down and into small bites? Yeah, I think like, you know, one of the th real thrills of making these movies for us, Joe and I have always loved ensemble storytelling. And if you look at our early work, like, like our very first work as filmmakers, when we were doing very small independent movies, there were, there were always ensemble pictures. And then we moved into television, which was, you know, especially comedy, which was when we got to work with great ensembles. Like we've always very, been very steeped in ensemble storytelling. Now, flash forward, Winter Soldier was, a, you know, a bit of ensemble. It had maybe four lead characters, which is sort of like a normal small ensemble. But when we went, moved on to Civil War, we were dealing with a number of characters that we had never encountered before in a feature film. And so Joe and I, be, like we were having trouble on a structure level when working with uh, the writers, Marcus and McFeely, how do you actually structure a narrative for that many characters? It's really difficult. So, you know. So we ripped off the towering inferno. <laughs> and then it's a mad, 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 mad world. And no, but that's it. We like the, the number of movies that you can count that have ensembles that large are like two or three. So, and they're not really that reliable in terms of what we were doing. So part of the fun, uh, part of the thrilling thing was realizing, oh my God, we don't have a model to rely upon with, uh, with working with an ensemble this large. We have to sort of make it all up and figure it out as we go. And I think part of the way we made that process manageable on a dramatic level was what you're talking about now, which is sort of finding a way to reduce it to sort of manageable scenes where you can actually have people in interacting with one another on a substantive level and then thinking about how do we break up the, nar the larger arcing narrative in a way that supports Because you can't throw all the characters on a bus and drive them through every scene and have anything stick to the ribs. You know, there's no... But people try. You, you, can tr <laughs> you can try, exactly. And I think it's like, if more than, again, if so we're talking about the rules of like spectacle, more than 30 seconds, you can't contain it in your brain. More than you know, three people in a scene like this with the spectacle and everything that's going on, and it's just impossible to create any sense of uh, uh, identity. It's funny, I was watching um, Civil War, which had a question about why Civil War is not an Avengers movie, since it has almost everybody. Is there a reason why it's, why it's a Captain America movie? It, you know, well, it, it's, it's told from his point of view. It is, it is told. It, it begins like, with him, it ends with him. And it's arguably right. the way you segue from the very personal sort of story of Cap, who is arguably one of the co-leads of the Avengers, uh, along with Tony Stark, and, and, and in terms of understanding how his very specific individual story segues into the larger narrative that tears the Avengers It's another apart. good question because that's about point of view. And point of view is also really important in these movies. Whose point of view are you telling the story through? Captain America Civil War is told from his point of view. Uh, and then Infinity War? Infinity War is told from Thanos' point of view. So we try to each time out get really specific, make choices that are going to be unique perhaps catch you off guard or surprise you. And then uh, this one is told from the point of view of the original Avengers. This, this is their story, it's wrapping up their story. Stark from, right. I mean, in the book ending sense. Right. Um, uh, and then the other part of tone is humor. And I was asking them, like, do the actors understand, like, these, I, I am so thrilled with these wrenching turns between deep emotion and then humor and I find it so real and living it's why I love comedy because when you could do this but most of television world is terrified of this tone because they don't understand when they read it how to make sense of the joke after the cry 
you know, in quite this way. But, you know, I, I mentioned the scene where uh, Hulk is coming to rescue or to revive Thor from his sea cottage. And, you know, he mentions Thanos and, and Thor has this deep emotional turn that I didn't know if you wrote that, how that's written on the page that the actor would know this breaks what's come before. This is deeply felt. And then, and then there's, uh, then there's a joke to get, get us, get us out of it. But, yeah. Well, it's us walking them through it. Our process in the, in the script room, uh, again, another, I think secret in a movie of the scales that, Everything on the page has to be so specific to what you want because there are thousands of people involved with the production and they all need to understand what it is that you're thinking. The easiest way to communicate that is in the script. So we spend months in, in a room with Marcus and McFeely who write these together, talking through the story, breaking the story together. Uh, you know, they'll just appear and do outlines and then we... I'll talk about the outlines for another few weeks and then we go to script phase and then once we get to a structural place that we're happy with, we understand tone, we understand point of view, we then go through and just do a draft where we sit in the room, all of us, put it on a screen. Again, this is what we've taken from television. We do a room with the four of us yeah. and we just go line by line and we say, this is what we're looking for from the actor here, this is what we want to communicate to the crew here, this is what we need from special effects here. And so everything just it gets put down on the page as a master document for everyone to understand what it is we're trying to accomplish with each scene. That includes moments like that where we think through, just on a tonal level, we like absurdity. We like you know, pathos and humor being smashed together. So if you're gonna take a character like that and he has this sort of you know, absurd opening where he's screaming at a kid on the internet playing Fortnite and then suddenly he, uh, you know, he, gets, he gets locked in almost in a PTSD way to the trauma. This guy's, he's suffered like a Shakespearean amount of tragedy. He's lost his, his mother got killed, his father got killed, his brother got killed, his best friend got killed. His planet got his destroyed. planet got destroyed. He lost, he lost half of the Asgardians uh, and he's failed at being a king. So this is a, this is a guy who has deep, deep emotional trauma inside of him. Uh, and if you can, we tend to find that audiences respond better emotionally if they're laughing. If they become, they become more emotionally available to you if you can make them laugh and then give them sadness uh, versus just giving them, you know, shoving sadness down their throats relentlessly. Well, it's but, interesting but, too, like, yeah. to, like how you layer the scenes sequentially. I, I can't remember the exact pattern, but I remember it was, um, it was a deeply emotional scene and then you cut to Thor walking out with his, you, you had big music, his sunglasses, his beard, and he's walking out to the time machine. But you, went, you, but you, didn't, you couldn't put two emotional scenes back to back. You, you're riding this roller coaster of letting us enjoy and making us feel. And that's what makes this movie so satisfying. Well, we love that. I mean, we love, mo we love movies that give you a really wide range of experience, that take you through all the emotions you can possibly have. Like, make you laugh, make you cry, make you think, make you afraid, make you thrill you, excite you, et cetera. Like we love, and we love, as we move through the process, we think it's very exciting and fun to be constantly shifting gears back and forth where you don't know what to expect and you're just being jammed through the most unexpected uh, corridor you can possibly imagine. But I think to your point that it, it doesn't, it's difficult to translate on the page and it is a hard, very hard idea. And it's, until you said that, I hadn't really thought about it um, but like, yeah, if I go back to Winter Soldier, you know, we did, we, I, I think in Winter Soldier we didn't do as much of that. But I think there's a reason why 
in Endgame, you know, as our last film with Marvel after four years and seven, uh, sorry, four films in seven years, we were able to do that perhaps at a more sophisticated level because we had that level of trust with the actors, with the producers, with the studio, etc. So we were able to sort of heat things up in a way that might have been harder to translate. Like politically, or you were able to do it. Was, it was you weren't like over manip manipulating through script. You were you were providing the actors didn't take offense. Is what you're saying? When exactly, you and everybody that, would buy. Everyone would take it you. on a flyer more. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if it wasn't quite on the page, they weren't like, I don't get it. Pull the ripcord and stop the train. They'd be like, I don't get it. Tell me what I'm supposed to be doing here. You know what I mean? It's a different. It's a different relationship. I think the ongoing. I mean, the way you call back. I mean, this is. I mean, again, the, the time travel thing is a brilliant way to go back to two-handers, go back to intimacy in, that, in the scale versus spectacle because it's, it's big, the time travel thing, but it, every single story gets intimate, and you do it so brilliantly, the writers, and you do it so brilliantly at every turn when it's just a small thing, but the very end when um, um, Rory says, on your left, or not Rory, it's, it's uh, uh, yeah. Falcon. Yeah. Falcon says, yeah. says, on your left, Eddie. This, I went, oh my God, because I just watched Winter Soldier like last night, and I went, I got a little tear, you know, because it was like, it was so satisfying. Well, this is a narrative experiment. It's, an, it's a mosaic that's taken place over 11 years. Yeah. So, you're, you know, you're rewarded to an extent for having seen the other films and having intimate knowledge of the story up till this point. Obviously, I think, you know, this one's probably much harder than some of the other ones. You can jump into quite a few of them at any point that you want to. This one pays off, you know, 21 movies, so I think it's a little more difficult in that regard. But uh, that is the intent, is that, you know, you're, you're paying forward, you're paying backward. And, you know, what's unique about this, and I think that this is, you know, a conversation he and I have all the time. And this is the way that we think about these movies. And, and you have to not only be a director, but you have, to, you have to understand pop culture. You have to like look at the trends. You have to understand how people are receiving narrative. There's a lot of things you have to do when you're working on a movie of this scale in order for it to translate uh, uh, globally. And one of those things is trying to understand how narrative is working in today's world. And what I think it is, and, and the sort of thesis that we've been operating off of for seven years is you know, that, you know, people want serialized storytelling because they crave an emotional connection that has longevity versus it's much harder to generate that same kind of emotional response that we're, you know, we're getting to some of the bigger emotional moments in this movie in two hours. It's very hard. It's just math. If you've got two hours of storytelling time and, you know, a character suffers a terrible fate an hour in, you can have a certain emotional response depending on how good you did in that first hour with that character. But if that character suffers that same emotional fate after 22 films, it can be devastating. You know, it's, it's, it's much more traumatic. And I just think that this is, it's a combination of Marvel, it's a combination of Netflix uh, and, uh, and OTT platforms. But I think that we're, we're working towards long form narrative uh, um, in a way, moving forward as being the dominant form of narrative. I totally agree. I, when I saw the poster for King Arthur, the, it was a movie. I didn't realize that. And I saw the poster for King Arthur, and I was like, oh. And then I saw it was a movie that had failed. I went, that was a movie? I thought that would made a great long form. You know, you, you, you want longer narratives because you have time to invest. Exactly. Yeah. You can tell better stories with the characters. You can – and again, this isn't a, a – a, um, you know, a, a qualitative sort of examination of the two. You can do incredible work in either. Uh, I just think that 
the younger generation, this generation coming up, and I got four kids that are between the age of 13 and 21, watching their viewing habits. Their viewing habits are about connectivity and longevity. And, uh, and I don't think that's going anywhere. So, so, and how does this closing book of phase three of the Marvel, so how, I mean, how do you, uh, there there's, must be a web of, of connections that are connected to the next, the next generation of films to the same viewers. With Marvel. Yeah, Marvel, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, the one, one, of the, one of the real creative upsides of this movie, of Endgame, for Joe and I, was that we, the goal for us was to, to tell the most satisfying ending to the, to the 11 years and the 22 movies uh, that we could possibly tell. So we, for the first time, we weren't thinking forward which was a ma an amazing thing because we were all like, our job was simply to look backwards, to think about these characters, the roads that they've traveled, and figure out how do we bring each one of them to the most satisfying and unexpected and surprising cl conclusion that we could. So we weren't thinking about the future. Now there, is, there certainly is a future to the MCU, but, and, and Joe and I have been involved in that since we started with Winter Soldier, but I, I think one of the great things about the work that we were able to contribute to this movie is that I think we got to places on this movie. Be, and again, this is a credit to Kevin Feige as a producer who's, you know, the, the greatest producer we've ever worked with. Um, his discipline and his focus was to allow us on this movie to not think about the future at all and to be simply focused on concluding the story. Um, so we haven't done a ton. You know, there, there's a lot of thought been put into the future of the MCU, but it hasn't been... Um, driven by Joe and it's, I. It's a bummer to think. I mean, it's like the ending of Harry Potter, kind of. It's like this whole world you become accustomed to, and, and Iron Man and Captain America, it's a real disappointing <laughs> that they're gone, and there'll be some new form to them, but it's a, it's a generational passing. It is, yeah. and I, well, that's part of it, I think, that you can't, you know, there's nothing has value unless it has an ending, right? So even in serialized storytelling, at some point, you have, to, you have to get to an ending, and endings are usually the best part of any story, or that's the hope, right? Beginnings. Yep, or beginnings, but yes. it's, you know, you want that ending to be uh, uh, um, uh, inspiring. You want that ending to be impactful on you and so, and worthy of the entire story that you've invested in. So that, that's what I think is, um, is unique about uh, um, this movie is that it actually does get to end. Was there ever, uh, is this always the way it ended? Was there ever, do you have to rethink anything? Was there, was this? No, about I mean, three years ago, we came up yeah. with the ending of this movie before. We had to write both of these scripts at the same time, and um, we needed to know what happened at the end of this one, obviously, in order to write both scripts, uh, uh, for Marcus McField to write both scripts. You have to know where you're going, yeah. because then everything is about paying off the ending. You know, if you watch the film and you go look at Tony Stark's arc, everything in it is about maximum impact for him. Uh, and I know some people are recording, so maybe... <sighs> maybe uh, let people know there's spoilers if you're going to post this stuff. But, you know, everything is about maximum impact for Tony dying at the end of the movie. Uh, at, you know, at the beginning of the film, he comes home and sort of has an emotional reckoning with Cap. You know, he's got this incredible amount of guilt that he's feeling. Uh, then you cut to him five years later, he now has a daughter, which has always been a difficult thing for him to do, which settle down uh, and uh, um, um, give uh, emotional uh, time to uh, his wife and his family. He's put Iron Man aside. They come asking. He rejects it because he says, I, the last thing I want to do is start messing with time and lose the thing that I now love most, which is my daughter. 
Uh, and then, of course, by the end of the film, the thing that he has to sacrifice is his connection with his daughter. So only in knowing where you're going, and this is set up in Infinity War 2, if you go back and look at it, um, only in knowing where you're going can you then hit the correct storytelling beats to get you there with maximum impact. Yeah, but that being said, the, there was a lot of, even though we spent a lot, long time figuring out the endpoint for the major characters and we knew where we, what we wanted those endpoints to be, we then, part of our process is exp we love experimentation. So as far as the road that we got to those endpoints throughout Infinity War and Endgame, there was a lot of experimentation. Um, and that's, uh, that's always been a critical part of our process, not only at the script phase, but when we're, at, when we're shooting and in post-production. We, we, love, we love trying different ideas. So loss is a huge theme in this movie. And, the, and so do you feel like, I mean, had you gotten an origin story in, in, in phase one, you know, it would have been a very, you had the benefit of leaning into the, this journey that these characters have been on for 11 years, is that that was, and it charged everything. The emotionality you're able to find in both these last two movies is, is profound. I mean, so you think, is that, I'm sort of talking about the serialized aspect of it all. Would you have what? How different would it have been if you would have been originating characters in in phase one? Well, it's a great question because again, and this speaks to sort of like the specificity of what the MCU is and the sort of the sort of wonderful um, opportunities yeah. in in serialized storytelling. Because I think you know Joe and I got to join the MCU. And I think what like the ideal time for our sensibilities were like we Joe and I are big into deconstruction. You know, we like to tear things down. We like to tear things apart. We like to subvert things. So, you know, when we got hired by Marvel to to start developing the Winter Soldier, just before event the first Avenger movie came out. So just before the the series was established as like as 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 the as the sort of powerful wonderful thing that it is. We, we came on to then, so we get to enter the narrative at that point and we get to go, okay, well now that you've built up this like amazing thing, let's figure out how to tear it down. You know, like that's our job, you know? How do we, how do we sort of tear down, how do we tear apart Captain America? And then how do we tear apart the event? Like, how do we tear apart Captain America? That is exactly what the Winter Soldier is. You know, how do you get Captain America to lie to his superiors? How do you get Captain America to realize that the, that the, the cause that he's serving is corrupt. You know, in, in, winter, in Civil War, it's how, how do you tear apart the Avengers? How do you divorce this family? How do you destroy the relationship between Tony and uh, Steve? Um, and, then, and then moving on to Civil War, I mean, Infinity War, you know, oh, oh, guess what, guys? The bad guy wins. You know, that happens in life. You know, so it's like the, the whole road that we got to travel through the MCU was basically what plays to our taste and instincts as storytellers like the strongest part, I think, of us that we have to offer creatively. So it was weird because I don't know if we had entered, I don't know that we would have built the series up as well as if had, had we entered at the beginning. We just got really lucky to enter when we did. And, the, and that, I, we got lucky that you entered when you did because it's the emotionality of that that makes these movies so satisfying. I mean, and the, and I always think that, I think Winter Soldier was like two and a half hours long, two and a half hours long. And I thought it's the extra half hour where you spend just on his anguish as a black and white man in a gray world, you know, that, that was made it so satisfying. You know, that was what was interesting is the extra time you're able to spend in script and on screen, you know, dealing with the nuances of life in the modern world. It, it's, 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 it, 
fascinating to hear you say that because like th those are the parts of the movies that we cherish the most as well. And like as you would expect, for as wonderful as Marvel is and wonderful as Disney is, those are always the parts of the movies that we get challenged the most on. And those are the hardest for us to sort of defend. But we also believe in those as, as, as critical aspects to the, to the experience. What were your hardest movies in this one to defend? Well, I think earlier in the film, I mean, yeah. you know, we maybe the the whole the whole five the twenty minute movie that ends in failure, yeah. <laughs> and then the five years later, I mean, I was like, that's the whole that's the whole genius right there. Yeah. Twenty minutes in, you're like you're five minutes in, you're doing it, and then it all bottom you know hits rock bottom, and it's five years later, and everybody's well, that's playing with expectation, mess. right? As you're going to walk into the theater and assume, you know, this is sort of you it's know such a quick start linear adventure yeah. uh, movie as they, uh, these guys all band together to go find. Uh, Thanos get the gauntlet back. Well, what if you know twenty minutes in that ends in failure, and where does the movie go from there? That's the most compelling thing. We we like writing ourselves in into a corner, uh, and uh, I think um, uh, you know Breaking Bad is probably one of our you know our, our favorite pieces of uh, entertainment in the last forty years because it consistently ends in a corner, and you just have no idea in the next episode how they're going to get out. And it's fa it's fascinating to watch, and it's. You know, it's uh, it's thrilling to watch, um, and and so we, you know, uh, um, similarly try to constantly put ourselves in corners here, where you know the audience would have to go on journeys with us and 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 be surprised. So, is there a Russo method when you first get something? How, the way that you look at something, or the filters you put it through? I mean, it's different. I guess if you're developing it with writers from scratch, that's a different set of filters. If somebody hands you something, I mean, what does it need to have to be? something that you guys relate to you know it's a good question i mean look i mean one thing that i've been grateful about in terms of the road that joe and i have been able to travel is like we have very eclectic tastes and we like to be surprised and so we've been very fortunate that like if you look at our career like we've made movies for as little money as you could possibly make a movie for and now we've made movies for as much money as you could possibly make a movie for. you know we've made Com comedies in television, we made dramas, we've worked on uh, cable, made, uh, network, etc. we shoot commercials. We sort of love the entire variety that you can find in terms of what you can do as a filmmaker with cinema. So I, it's hard, like on one level it's hard for me to say what we respond to just because we do, res we, we like to be challenged and we like to be pushed into um, places that, w that feel unfamiliar to us. We're, like, we light up the most when we're scared. So um, it's nice to get into those places. So you're going small now? What do you do after this? What are you We're <laughs> definitely going small. We are, we are you're actually, definitely going small? Point yeah. the camera to people talking for yeah, a little while. Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Is there any part, where's my man being asked to wrap up, is there any part of this movie you watch that bugs you, you wish you could have been better? Do you, it, it, the piece you go, oh, I wish, so wish that would have been different. Oh, or do you just uh, get to go back and redo it if that's yeah. the case? Um, I don't know. Can you think of anything? I don't know. <laughs> I would say this. I would... I would say until we got until about our fourth, we do we do these things called friends and family screenings as opposed to calling them test screenings at Marvel. And like part of the reason I think that we call them that is because, you know, because there's such a high level of secrecy with these movies, um, it's really important that whoever you show the movie to doesn't talk about it. So there's this process that we've developed where um, uh, people we we have these test screenings where like people who are connected to Disney can be invited. But you can't, to the screening, but you can't work in the film business, but you have to have a strong connection to some, you have to be invited by somebody at Disney, which of course means that, like, if you say anything, 
your loved one who invited you will be fired, right? So it's very like, it's, it's very, very controlled, you know? <laughs> um, so I think it was like, I think it was till about the fourth, fourth test screening that we had, friends and family screening, um, that I was totally sick over the movie. I was just scared to death. I was like, it's a disaster. But then it just turns the corner for some reason. I, I don't know. There's like, there, you know. A movie like this is so big and so complex, and it's made up of so many like micro beats that um, it's hard to say. Like we, you know, it, it, I don't know. It's I, I don't think like Joe. I don't well, think I just, have a thing. You to spill a with. thousand marbles on a table, and then you slowly have yeah, to exactly. just do this over two years. You're just yeah. trying to. Push it's it's like uh, Smart Hulk says to uh, Black Widow when they're about to do the time test. He says, "It's time travel. It's either all a joke or none of it is." You know, it's kind of the same thing with the movie. Uh, in closing, I would say two things. One, Smart Hulk is hot. Two, <laughs> two, uh, these we'll, guys are we'll just done. We'll let Ruffalo know. Was, yeah. We'll let Mark Ruffalo know that. Yeah, Agreed. no, Smart Hulk is super yeah. hot. Agreed. Um, anyways, uh, and secondly, um, these guys are just done like 38 straight days of press, you said, something like that. 38 so, yeah, days I, of press. Yeah. I thank them for coming out for the Guild. They're great Guild members, and let's give them a hand, please. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, if you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 